UFOs and flying saucers and ETs In government conspiracies But I've seen none of the above If I did, I think I probably would run a million miles Lose my little mind Hello and welcome to the X-Files Talk X-Files The only podcast that was a fan of the stars of Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul Before there even was a Breaking Bad or Better Call Saul I'm your host, David Harwood, and joining me on the podcast today from xfilesnews.com, I have Kava Anderson. Hello, Kava. Hi there. Thank you for having me. On today's episode, we are going to be discussing the first five episodes from season six of The X-Files. We are talking the beginning through to the Dreamland two-parter. Of course, the Breaking Bad reference was Brian Cranston, Mr. He Who Knocks himself, was in the episode Drive, and the second episode we're going to discuss today. And the Better Call Saul reference was, of course, for Michael McKeon, who is in Dreamland 1 and 2. But before we dive into today's selection of episodes, we're going to kick off with a listener question, this week from Ruben Bevan. This week's question is, which phenomenon or horror trope do you think would make a good basis for an X-Files episode? Kava, do you want to take this one first? Sure. Wow, wow, that was weird. Right, <laughs> what, yeah. What happened what? there? I have no idea. Okay, um, well, anyway, as, as I was saying, um, the listener question this week is, uh, which phenomenon or horror trope do you think would be a good basis for an X-Files episode? So, Kava, uh, do you want to go ahead and answer that one first? Um, sure. You know, come to think of it, they never did, like, your classic slasher, like Jason or, you know some dude running around with a chainsaw. I don't think we ever saw something like that, which that can be interesting. Yes. Yeah. I, I, I actually think maybe Milagro at least starts off with that kind of horror movery, you know, sort of, you know, typical urban legend kind of stuff, doesn't it? That's true. That is true. I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> he does. It's, you know, the, the kids out in the car in the, in the make out lane and, you know, somebody knocks on the window. Yeah. It's the only thing I remember from that episode. <laughs> the only thing? <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're building up to building up to this one, and uh, yeah, it, I think it's just going to be uh, Tiffany and Avi just talking for about an hour. <laughs> <laughs> There's a little bit of ship in that episode. Just, uh, a little bit, up. apparently. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about this question, and you know, as a writer myself, you know, it's kind of like, you know, what would be a good X Files episode? What would be something that they haven't done before? Um, you know, what could you do? And they've done so much. Um, and I would want to, if I was going to write something myself, I'd want to kind of do like a typical, you know, scary sort of um, investigative X-Files episode rather than a comedy episode or something that does something a little bit new. Um, so I was thinking, you know, some, a really cool one with like a little kid might be if the kid had an imaginary friend. And I guess, you know... Um, we kind of approach that sort of territory with the Karusari mm-hmm. episode a little bit. Um, otherwise, you know, there's been reports over time of people who've kind of been out of time. They've just appeared out of nowhere and they don't speak the native language. And then they claim to be from, you know, 40 years previous or something like that. There's supposedly been some documented cases throughout history. So I thought that might be a nice little twist on the sort of time travel. 
Which they did sort story. of do that in season eight, I think, with the the little boy who was murdered and then came back. Well, that's true. I mean, I'm thinking more from a more of a distant historical yeah, time or something. That's true. Um, you know, like you suddenly get a Viking turns up in Times Square or something. <laughs> <like that>. Yes. <laughs> but but doing it in an ex filey kind of way, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise, mermaids. The only mermaid that we've seen on the show is the yep. Fiji mermaid. So I was thinking a cool story for that one might be, I don't know what the crime would be that would give them cause to investigate. But basically you have somebody who's uh, going through um, puberty, teenage sort of time, and they think that maybe they are actually a mermaid or something. But this would be, my twist on it would be that this is actually the episode where Scully is right, and it's just a normal person, and they're just going through all of these hormonal <laughs> changes. Yeah, don't mind those fins, it's fine. Like, exactly. Nothing to worry about here. So those are my answers to that. Um, so if anybody does have any other question out there, please get in touch. Uh, you can tweet at me. I'm at David T. Harwood. Uh, I'm David T. Harwood on Facebook. You can message me there or just go to X-Files, talk X-Files.com, click on the contact button and you can send me an email. Today's episode, uh, we are talking the beginning uh, through to the Dreamland two-parter. Um, so let's kick off then with the beginning, uh, which does a great job of connecting the dots between the end, which is the last episode that we had, and Fight the Future movie that we've just talked about in our last podcast. So we bring back Gibson Praise here and finally connect him to the larger mythology, uh, ties in directly with the whole idea of the black oil becomes the killer aliens, becomes the grey aliens, which is revealed at the end of this episode. We establish Spender and Fowley as more of a recurring uh, threat Ooh. to Mulder and Scully. And of course, we introduce the lovely Alvin Kirsch. Although I don't think we know his name's Alvin yet. I don't think so. Um, oh, and of course, starting off the episode with the Roush van. Which, yes. first time I saw that, I was like, a little, yay! Continuity, woohoo! <laughs> they remembered something. <laughs> I think that when Roush is first sort of brought into us it was through Critchgow who sort of revealed that um Roush is a sort of lobbying firm that had something to do with biotechnology and I'm just mentioning that now because it's something we're going to come back to in a few episodes time uh actually next podcast in SR 819 where Skinner is infected with those nanobots and that maybe that's actually that Roush is actually behind all of that because there's some mythology characters sort of getting involved there as well. But uh, <laughs> we will come to that in the next podcast. Um, Kava, what are your thoughts on the beginning? What have you got to say about this episode? Oh, it's it, there's just so much. You know, you're coming off the off the high of the of the movie and you think, you know, the partnership's stronger than ever. And, you know, if I quit now, they win. And it's like this episode really puts the brakes on it, you know, from the very beginning when they're in the um that meeting with OPR and Mulder's telling his kind of pie in the sky story and hope Scully's going to back him up and of course she doesn't because she believes the the virus is not extraterrestrial after she's done some some further testing and and then to kind of throw a little more salt on the wound Diana's back and and acting like she believes him and and you just see that gap start to open up there and I I think one of the things I have written down after watching the episode yesterday was wow Mulder's being a jerk (laughs) (laughs) yeah he really is in this one he you know we talked before and joked that he tends to ditch Scully at the you know whatever opportunity he gets but this is where it really does sort of it seems like he's kicking her to the curb in this one yeah I'm sorry, Scully, but your science is wrong. What? No. 
<laughs> Come back. We need to talk about this. <laughs> Granted, I mean, in Walder's defense, he's he's had a pretty rough go of it. He's trying to to reassemble his his beloved X Files by you know scanning and then trying to you know like a phoenix from the ashes sort of thing and. So I, I can understand why he's a little crabby, but come on, you know, you, you don't just uh, try to kiss the girl and then, and then uh, run away the next chance you get. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's just trying to find out, you know, who stuck that bee on her. He's just trying to right. get to the end of that, you know, and uh, just take his revenge out on whoever's behind the bees. I think that's where we're at at this point. And yes. This, look at, listen to the words coming out of my mouth. This is what you people from X Files News have done to me. <laughs> this podcast is come suddenly, over to the dark side, David. Suddenly, I'm talking about everything through a shipper perspective. That's just crazy. <laughs> I think we did. I think we did switch brains here or something. Could be. You know, you're still hanging out over here. I don't know. Yeah. Um, I thought this episode actually really impressed me from a, a directing standpoint because. We're so used to Rob Bowman doing all of the big um, mythology stuff, and obviously he's just done the movie. But even though he's going to be involved with the show for another few seasons, he does actually do quite a lot of episodes. This is really where he's now starting to make his career transition, trying to do more movies at this point. So he's going to become less and less involved in the show. And Kim Manners is actually going to t- take over as the number one director, you know, who takes on a lot of the big mythology episodes, especially in the very late seasons. And this is the first episode where you can really see um, him trying to prove himself as a worthy successor to Rob Bowman. This is a really well-directed episode. You know, he takes, you know, he, it matches the bar of previous mythology episodes, especially the end, which is the last one before this. Um but he's also known as the the horror movie director as well, you know. He tends to do the really scary episodes. And that's evidence too because there's a lot of stuff goes on. You have a lot of stuff with this killer alien. But you'd hardly ever see the alien. It's all done in the shadows and it's all the whole idea of the less you see, the scarier it is. And I think that really is evident in this episode. Yeah, and it works so well. It because does. Like, when, when you do finally get a look at the alien, it's just kind of... You know, as as good as the the special effects and the technology was then and, and continues to, you know, it, it does hold up. But at the same time, it's just never quite as scary once you see it as, as as it can be in your imagination, whatever's sort of lurking off to the sidelines there. And I think they did a, a nice job of that. You know, also um, talking about his directing, there's a nice bit in there where it dissolves um, from a shot, which is a close up of Mulder's profile to a close-up of Spender's profile, just sort of subtly reinforcing the idea that they're actually half-brothers. Yep. So I thought that was kind of neat. Um, and the only other thing that I really have to say about this one is that it, in terms of advancing the mythology, we talked about how the Black Oil becomes the killer alien, becomes the grey alien. We delve a bit more deeper into what's going on with Gibson here and that his DNA is actually part extraterrestrial, which means that we're all part extraterrestrial, yes. which then sets up to where we're going to go for the end of this season with biogenesis into uh, the sixth extension at the beginning of season seven. I love Gibson. He's just such a, a fascinating character and, and just a really interesting kid. Um, I, I wish we would have seen a little more of him. And I do really want to know how the heck he got out of the power plant at the end. You know, where where did he go after that? I mean, we know he ends up, you know, at that school for the for the deaf eventually. But, you know, how did he how did he manage to escape? And... I just assumed that the aliens spirited him away somewhere and then he does a Saddam Hussein. So <laughs> that very could we very well could we. 
Yeah. I, I like that. The other thing, other note I see that I have written down here is, that, you know, it all comes down to trust. It always does. And I, I love that that theme, you know, was so very strong there at the end when, when Scully is able to, to present Mulder finally with some science that does sort of back up what he was trying to say at the beginning. And it does, it does bring them back together. All right. On to uh, Drive, which is probably my favorite episode from this season. Really? Yeah, I'll be honest, season six is not one of my favorite seasons at all. <laughs> and, but Drive has always been a favorite episode. I've said before on this podcast, I'm a sucker for Vince Gilligan. I, I, yes. Some of my favorite episodes from it, from like, the entire show are the ones that were written by him. Mm-hmm. And this is before, you know, I was a huge Vince Gilligan fan before Breaking Bad even came along. You know, he's the reason yeah. why I wanted to check out that show. We're the Vince Gilligan hipsters. We liked him before he was. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I think we said that for a few people, so yep. uh, it definitely holds up here. No, this episode, it, it, you know, it kind of plays with the um, the idea of what an X-File is. You know, you have the teaser, which is the news report about the police chase, just like a, kind of like a cheesy, mm-hmm. exactly the sort of thing you'd expect to be on local news out in the middle of nowhere in Nevada. I am very familiar with living in Southern California. It's all car chase all the time. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Um, so I like that about it. And I just think it's, it's, a, it's a nice dynamic for the episode that, you know, we have the, the beginning and the end, sort of Mulder and Scully doing these bozo sort of work, uh, checking out the manure and stuff. But but in between that, you have this intense story. And it's also, you know, also compressed because it's all while Mulder's in a car driving out towards California, towards the coast. And you have that great dynamic between Mulder and Crump in the car. Um, just a very antagonistic relationship, even though they're on the same side. And then, you know, Scully has been ditched once again. Yep. But she is actually the one doing all of the investigation in this episode. She's the one sol- solving the problems. Mulder just gets some great character stuff right. in the car. Um, I just think it's a really well-written script. And it's a well-shot episode. This is, of course, Rob Oman directing once again. So... Mm-hmm. He does elevate what, um, you know, in another director's hands may not have been the episode that it becomes. But you seem surprised that it was one of my favorites. Mostly just because I had to watch it a few times myself before I really started to kind of get it. Um, I, th- I think at first I was more just annoyed because they were, you know, once again, you've got Mulder and Scully, but they're separated. You know, Scully's <laughs> right. doing her thing. Mulder's off doing his thing. There's not a, a ton of interaction between the two of them, except, you know, on the phone. Um, I, I did watch the episode again last night, just as sort of a, a refresher. Um, and you can tell it's a Vince script. You just, you know, there's so many great lines and there's always humor woven in, even yes. when it's a very serious situation, just the, you know, the, the Mr. Crump and Mr. Mulder, you know, in the, you know, in the car. Like, I can put Mr. in front of something else, you know. <laughs> I can't go left. There's just trees there. Calls him a peanut picking bastard at one point too, which I, I rather enjoyed. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, no, I, I think it's a great episode. There's some great yeah. visuals there where they go out to the trailer park and you know the the lights and they've got yes. the suits on and stuff. It's all I I I just think it's really good and especially in contrast to some of the other episodes in season six, which mm-hmm. all seem a bit I don't know sunshine and lollipops. Yeah, that's the in in two here we're kind of getting into the difference between the the Vancouver years and the Los Angeles years even just the look. I mean, I know at some point they they joked that it was the same show it was just dark and dry as opposed to dark and wet because the rain was gone, but it really wasn't. I mean, it, yeah. 
you can, you know, you, you start to see that right from the beginning. And then even in, you know, this episode, they're, they're still tooling around in the, the desert states and it's, it's very yes. shiny, even though they, they tried to, to knock that back a bit. But yeah, it is, it's definitely one of the darker episodes. Yeah, we do get a lot of desert episodes from this point forward. And obviously this is one of the first ones, Mm -hmm. but it's also one of the ones, like you said, that is a a little bit darker. It's a little bit kind of grittier desert rather than the bright sunshine and and everything that we see a lot more Mm -hmm. in some of the future desert episodes. Yeah. I also sort of wonder, too, if uh, Scully didn't learn her lesson about examining the contagion without protective gear from, you know, F. Masculata back in the day. Because she's just looking at the at his wife's head, even though it's half blown off yeah. you know, first. And then, she's, you know, no protection whatsoever. And then wait a minute, you know. Reflex is like a jungle cat. <laughs> <laughs> you, out of here, now! And I love that bit because there's just a little bit, a little, like a little spot of blood just on her collar. You know, right. the rest of it all goes on the plastic apron, but it's just a little bit on her shirt collar. Right, you know, funny how that happens. <laughs> <laughs> and the uh, the other pathologist that she's stuck in there with, you know, is kind of getting a little bit anxious, but it's completely different scale to the one that she's stuck with in X-Cops, where they think it's the hantavirus. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's not the hantavirus! And I, don't I know like I've... yelling Scully. She's kind of my favorite. <laughs> so I was just about to say I, I don't know if I talked about yelling Scully before because sometimes I I don't think it's Jillian's best acting when she does the yelling. Mm-hmm. In this episode, it is, but yeah. when it's in the movie, like mother, there's no time. And there's another one that I saw that we watched fairly recently for this, and uh, there's two bits of where she's yelling and it, it just doesn't really work for me. But in this one, it does. Yeah. <laughs> And I also like the fact that, you know, she's yelling at the guy that, don't you know this place is under quarantine? And, oh, I should lock the door. That would be a right, really good yeah. idea. <laughs> Whoops. Hang on a second. So. And the other thing I like about this episode, too, is we, I mean, we kind of know Kirsch is evil from the get-go, but you start to get a sense of that from from that phone call. And so how's Southern Idaho, Agent Scully? Think carefully about this, you know, and then, <laughs> then the line later, I think I want to see him alive even more than you do. It's like, oh, boy, here we go. Yes. <laughs> And yeah, as a, in contrast to Skinner, who you never quite knew, mm-hmm. you know, up until recently what sign he was on, Kirsch is just relishing in being yeah. the bad guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you're going to be evil, be evil, so. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And he pulls it off so well. Which is why I still don't like the fact that he becomes the good guy at the very, very end. Right. It, it just seems just a little bit too convenient. Yeah. You know, I, I, I get that he's on their side. To an extent, but he still is the guy who has to do his job. You know, that's what Kirsch is all about. So I don't completely buy it, um, but at least they get out of prison. Right. So, I always assumed he was yeah. in on it for the longest time, but, you know. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I have to pay close attention when we're watching the next few seasons, but I never really thought that he was in on it so much as, you know, he was kind of doing his job and... He wasn't really interested if there was even a conspiracy, you know. Right. <laughs> he's just, he's just going to do what he's supposed to do. And, you know, if it turns out that these are all super soldiers that are controlling the FBI, well, you know, super soldiers are his boss. So he's right. just going to do what they want <laughs> okay. him to do. He wants his pension, damn it. <laughs> yep. As long as I get to go home by five, fine. <laughs> so next up we have Triangle, which, you know, I know is a shipper-friendly episode. For more reasons than one, because it does take place on a big ship. Um, <laughs> I will go down with the ship on the ship. <laughs> and yeah, you know, I love this episode. It's pure novelty. It's 
gimmicky, it's unusual. Um, I do think it's impossible to argue that this is canon, but it's just such a great episode. I always enjoy this one. You know, just seeing Scully running around the FBI and going up and down in the elevators, kissing Skinner. Right. Um, then out into the parking lot. You know, there's just so much energy to that whole sequence. And then the bit when they get onto the, the boat and the two Scullies walk past each other and sort of both look back. Um, yeah, I love this episode. I'm sure you love it even more than me. So uh, have at it. <laughs> oh, yes. I mean, it's just so beautifully shot for one thing. And, and I, I read that there's only 34 cuts in the entire picture, which is just yeah. fantastic. I actually used it as a, um, a scene analysis for a, a film class I took in college. And, and the whole thing was is you were supposed to be able to pick out where the cuts were and, and, and things like that. And, and that's what made it fun is because you really had to look to see where they disguised the, disguised the cuts. And it was also a very good excuse to show uh, part of the episode to my class. So you know, <laughs> I'll take it. I did that more than once. Um, yeah, but yeah, I, re- I remember writing some essay on Jose Chung's From Out of Space for some of my film class. <laughs> excellent. Yeah, and the, uh, you know, that Scully's mission to, you know, as she's running through the FBI, I love that from, you know, just, she's just so focused on the on the task at hand, she doesn't really seem to care what she needs to do to, to bail his ass out once again, you know, from, you know, yelling at Skinner and then going to Kirsch, even though she'd rather not, um, and, and visiting Spender, and, you know, I don't care, you know, what you do or who you do or who you have to grease, love that, and um, and then eventually, you know, kissing Skinner when, when uh She's she finally gets the information she wants from it, and and then uh, taking off with the lone gunman is just great. And I believe I did read somewhere that uh, a, a few times um, when they're you know because they had to they only had so much time to you know they'd close the elevator doors and then the the set deck people had to come out and rearrange everything you know so when they open it she's on a different floor and a couple of takes they would have to redo because they just there'd be one last guy like carrying a plant away or something <laughs> quite clear the set in time so. Like, I just can't imagine, you know, because normally they've got so much time to, to reset that, but when you're trying to do it in real time, that's got to be, you know, I can't imagine how complicated that was. Yeah. No, it's it's pretty amazing when you realize the amount of work that went into it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, just the amount of work that goes into most of these Exiles episodes, but um, that one in particular, and, you know, the more you watch it, the more you can sort of identify where they probably hide some cuts in there. Um, mm-hmm. But no, I've never sat down and actually watched it trying to find all 34. Right. So I may have to do that at some point. Good excuse to watch it again. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and the, um, I like the, you know, the Wizard of Oz feel to it, too, where you've got, you know, Skinner and Scully and Kirsch right. and Old Smokey and Spender all hanging out, you know, in the past as well as in the yeah. future. That's one of my notes I have written down here is that why is Chris so obsessed with referencing Wizard of Oz whenever Mulder wakes up in hospital? Because it happens in the movie as well. He comes oh, yeah. to and he sees the lone gunman. He's like, Scarecrow, Toto. Yep. yep. And then there's like two separate references in this scene because somebody says something, then Skinner walks in and he says something as well. Yep. It's like, really? Come on. <laughs> Yeah, well, then we we get uh, and, and there's more like Wizard of Oz references coming up, you know, a few episodes later in Rain King. Yes, I'm trying on lollipops. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the, I'll be saying a lot of stuff in that podcast about <laughs> all of that. I'm going to save it for that one because I re- I really like these episodes that we're talking about here. So right, <laughs> you're going to see another side of me in the uh-huh. next podcast. <laughs> it's not all bad. It's not all bad. Um. Yeah, anything else that you have to say about Triangle? 
Um, and the also my, my favorite joke, I think, in the whole thing is there's a little trouble in our White House, but that'll blow over, so to speak. Yep. <laughs> it's, just, it's definitely a show of the times. <laughs> yep. Oh, I kind of missed the 90s. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> yeah, I didn't have a mortgage to start with. So. Right. <laughs> yeah, that was my senior year of high school when this aired, so. <laughs> We were 98. Uh, yeah, I forget exactly how old I was, but yeah, I was probably a little younger, I guess. <laughs> okay. That brings us to um, another sort of story that something that didn't really happen uh, Dreamland and Dreamland 2. So, going from the 1930s now to contemporary America, and Mulder is going to switch bodies with a man in black who works in Area 51. Good old and Morris Fletcher. This two-parter, I know that you particularly like these two-parters and they have a special place for mm-hmm. you. Um, these two episodes have grown on me over the years. I think at the time I was one of those people that was kind of like, well, well why are we doing a, a comedy two-parter? You know, it kind of makes a joke out of the whole mythology stuff and it's fine doing it as a one-off episode like Jose Chung or something, but... Mm-hmm. Doing it as a two-parter like this, it kind of gives it a bit too much weight. And since then, I've come to admire the story, the two episodes, a lot more than I did back then. And I really appreciate how there's so much, so many layers to what's going on here. On one level, you do have the comedy body swap storyline. And, you know, you have Mulder and you have uh, Morris Fletcher, both kind of living different lives. And they're both kind of fish out of water in a way and how they approach it in different ways it's a nice kind of comedic um character piece but then you do also have some additional layers which do kind of help the morphology a little bit you know you're exploring the idea of is this alien tech and what can it do in a real world sense if you have these people who are just uh, salary men in a way whether they're the the pilots that fly them or if they're the people who are actually working in area 51 they don't actually really know what this technology is that they're using. I mean, that's the whole thing with the colonel is asking Mulder, are there really such thing as extraterrestrials right. and that's stuff? Are so, we just fly them? Yep. So it, it's kind of neat having that these people are dealing with this technology on a day-to-day basis, but they don't really know anything anyway. Yeah. I thought it was, an, you know, kind of neat. Um, but also, you know, this episode has the other layers of the, additional consequences of the wreck like the gas station getting burnt and other people getting their heads stuck in rocks and things and the main storyline i guess here is the whole idea of there's a leak at area 51 and they're trying to figure out who it is that's doing it you just have these basic different plot threads that go throughout the two episodes and it i think it does excuse the fact that they've made this go over to two episodes i think you have sufficient depth there and um yeah once again, you know, Mulder's so close to getting his proof, you know, he's right there and it, you know, it all just sort of dissolves into the, the ether again. But yeah, the, the reason uh, Dreamland and Dreamland 2 are, are special to me is because this is actually what introduced me to the X-Files. I was um, definitely a late starter. And it's funny how this happened. A, a friend of mine um, had written some fanfic and she asked me just to proofread it for her for, you know, grammar purposes since I didn't know anything about the characters really other than just hearing about them in passing, I read through her story and thought it was really great and went, you know, hey, if the characters are actually anything like the way she, you know, she wrote them, I might actually like this show. And the next episode that was going to be airing was Dreamland. So I figured I'd give it a try while I was, you know, working on homework or something else, just kind of have it on in the background. And, you know, 10 minutes in, I was hooked and 
the rest they say is history. And it's, it kind of makes me wonder if I would have, um, fallen as fast and as hard as I did. Um, had I started with one of the more dark episodes, but the, you know, I, what I did like about this is, is kind of what you touched on too, was the, it was just sort of a good way to ease into it because there was such a mix. I mean, you did have the, you know, there were some comedy aspects to it. You got to sort of take a step back from the partnership and look at it, you know, kind of in a different way. And, you know, also of course the, the alien technology being involved without it being, you know, the big heavy conspiracy that you're trying to figure out all the, the different threads on, um, yeah. yeah. Yes, I, I can see from that perspective coming into it, you don't, you know, it's a it's a two parter. So I guess you do get drawn into it a bit more, and you do get hooked because mm-hmm. it's making you watch that second episode, right? And then okay, you've watched two episodes. You may as well tune in next week now as well, right? But they're not a two parter where you have to have all this backstory. You just kind of have a basic idea of who the characters are, and you know, body swap thing. Anybody can get that, mm-hmm. whether you know the characters or not. Right. Um, a couple of notes that I had written down was that Fletcher's colleague at Area 21, he kind of even looks a bit like him, but he's like a man in black version of Spender. Yes. <laughs> you, you know exactly who I'm talking about. Yep. Just, yeah. Um, I think the second episode out of the two of them is my favorite. I really like the teaser where it's Mulder's life story from Fletcher's perspective. Yes. And that's just sort of tone that they nail so perfectly so often in the yep. Lone Gunman TV show as well. I think there's, um, or maybe it's actually in um, Jump the Shark episode where I think you have Fletcher telling the story of the Lone Gunman. Yep. It might be that one. It might be All About Eve's the final episode of their own show. I'm not sure. But yeah, that's the same sort of tone that they do so well in that show. And again, you know, Fletcher is going to be appearing. He's like the cigarette smoking man for the Lone Gunman, as is evidenced in, in this episode when he turns up. And you have that cute moment where Fro Hickey is cooking dinner for Byers and Langley, you know, and, and they're trying to teach Langley some Spanish because they're eating Mexican food. <laughs> just it, It's like a 30-second scene, but it's so cute. Yeah. Um, and then you have uh, Scully comes in and she brings uh, Fletcher in Mulder's body in, sort of explains to them what's going on, and he's basically saying how he's such a big fan of their paper because he makes up most of these stories that right. they take as the gospel truth. Yep. <laughs> Saddam Hussein is really John Gilnitz. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> Dinner theater guy. <laughs> yes, yeah, that's a great scene. Um, I think Grandma Top Gun is one of my favorites, too. <laughs> like, it, my favorite line, though, has got to be special tramp, Dana Scully. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh, of course, the infamous baby me, and you'll be peeing through a catheter. Yeah. But, and see, that's the other thing now that, you know, watching it again later, there is absolutely no way Scully wouldn't have realized something was up. Like, way back at the beginning when Mulder comes out of the office after flirting with Kirsch's secretary and hits her on the butt. Like, Mulder would never do that. Yeah. Like, I mean, maybe in later years, but not in public. But, you know. <laughs> and I especially love the fact that, you know, throughout it all, you know, they're, they're obviously pissed off Kirsch and all this stuff. And Scully's just looking at Fletcher because, you know, what is Mulder doing? He's trying to get in the good books. He's trying to become a model FBI agent but all the time he doesn't actually do any work he just sits there playing Tiger Woods on the yep. computer every time and then Mulder's uh, I, like two other things that just crack me up is of course the the infamous dance scene in the mirror like I love that they, they oh, yes, yes. spent all that time I think they it's they rehearsed for like a week and a half before they shot it which I just think is cool because it's, it's just so damn funny um and, and then, of course, at the very end, Mulder's reaction when he's coming back out of his apartment trying to figure out what happened because it's it's all still been redecorated. Like, I wonder how that, 
Like if everything else snapped back and the other, you know, people didn't remember any of this happening, how did the, you know, how did the, the apartment stay changed if nothing else had, but you know. I assume that it was outside the radius of what happened, I guess. But yeah, I'd be interested, it'd be interesting if there's anybody out there who had actually kind of figured out you know, how big this thing actually went and did it line up with the timelines of this gas station, you know, going back to normal and, and everything else. But uh, hey, it is what it is. It's a good episode. And, mm-hmm. But yeah, so we had three episodes in a row now where it was all just a dream. Yeah. Um, one other thing I did want to talk about in the Dreamland 2 parter, which is a moment that I'd forgotten about until I rewatched them a couple of days ago. A few episodes ago, one of our list of questions was um, asking for our favorite shipper moments from the show. And, you know, my answer was, well, I can't think of anything better than the end of Postmodern Prometheus. You know, it's still kind of is up there for me as a standard. And um, there's a moment in the end of Dreamland 2 where um, they're all in the little alley in. And... um, Fletcher sees his wife across the bar, Joanne, and she's just sitting at the bar crying because she's with Mulder and he's gone out and she's kind of realizing that their marriage is sort of falling apart and he just sort of stops dead in his track and just sort of looks at his wife crying across the barn. Obviously, he looks like a completely different person, but I think that scene for me, I just found so much more touching than some of the other shipper moments, which I guess I'm supposed to feel a little more I, I i guess there's because i guess these two characters obviously were in love at one point they do have more of a history i mean they've got teenagers for goodness sake so they've had a relationship a lot longer than Mulder and scully have anyway right. and just this man sort of realizing for the first time that okay just how bad of a husband or whatever he is and that just how deeply he has hurt this person that he's supposed to care about more than anyone else in the world and I don't know, I just think that that's a really powerful moment and that maybe I should, you know, sort of re-say that maybe that is one of my favorite shipper moments from the show. That's a, that's a good one. And I think, too, where he does, because I think he goes and has a conversation with her later, too, um, about their, like, when their kids were born, which was so sweet. And that's, that, that's kind of one of the other sad parts of that episode to me is because everything does, you know, go back to the way it was. You see him there. He's starting to learn something. And he's going to forget all that, you know, and just go right back to being kind of a, a pain in the ass husband who forgets to bring the milk home and, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and works all sorts of shady hours and, and doesn't know his kids very well. So that's just kind of kind of sad when you think about it that way. So I, I prefer to uh, focus on the uh, exchange of sunflower seeds because that one we know sort of has a happy ending maybe later eventually. Wait. Yeah. but this is chris carter we're talking about so (laughs) trust no one i wish i should of course mention here that um at the beginning of this episode and when Mulder gets back in his own body at the end he's wearing the gray t-shirt again Mm -hmm. which i think we saw a lot of um in some other episode in season five i forget which one it was now um but if you pay attention through season four to about season seven Whenever Mulder is chilling out outside of work, he always has jeans and a grey t-shirt on. And it's because of that that I would... I stocked up on some grey t-shirts at that point in my life. (laughs) (laughs) It's a good look. To go with the mask and tape X in my bedroom window. (laughs) Yeah, I may or may not still have a couple of pairs of, like, the ridiculous 90s scully heels with the the super chunky high heel. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 
Yeah, so I think these are some good episodes. A solid bunch of five episodes here. Uh, as I said, season six is probably not one of my favorite seasons, um, but I will hold that over for the next podcast. <laughs> Any final thoughts on these five? Well, I think, I mean, to me, season six is always going to be kind of a sentimental favorite just because of that's, you know, that's when I jumped in. But I can definitely see how it could sort of leave a bad taste in the mouths of some fans just because it is so much lighter than the other seasons, especially coming off of season five, which had a lot of, you know, mythology and just kind of wrapping up the cancer arc. And, you know, there was a lot of a lot of darkness there to sort of shift gears moving into the into the next season, I think can be can be kind of tough. But I, I think the nice thing about these first episodes is they just went so far outside the box. They really played with some different concepts and um, different ideas and, and stretched their storytelling a little bit. You know, it might not have necessarily been the the dark and scary that we were used to, but you know, more thoughtful in a way. I, I think because um, if you're not just going for the scare, you know, what else are you playing with? And I, I kind of appreciate that, especially in the early part of the season. That's true. That's true. Okay, so we'll move on to the quiz time. Um, I have five questions for you, one from each episode. Okay. Okay. So uh, for the beginning, question one. Uh, what is the name of the nuclear power plant worker who gets killed by the alien? That's Homer! <laughs> <laughs> After Homer Simpson, of course. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> Wake up, Homer. <laughs> In Drive, who does the farmer at the start of the episode initially mistake Mulder and Scully for? Oh, Jehovah's Witnesses. <laughs> That's right. Got a copy of the Watchtower for you. Yeah, that's another classic Vince comedy scene there. Yes. Miss <laughs> Scully's explaining the whole reason why they're there. You know, we understand that you've purchased some manure, blah, 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 and he just looks at her and goes, right. Jehovah's Witness? <laughs> <laughs> okay, in Triangle... Where does Kirsch's 1939 doppelganger want to take the ship? Jamaica. It does indeed. <laughs> and then Dreamland. I think they're actually, these questions are actually from Dreamland 1 and Dreamland 2 respectively, but I'll ask them both together. Okay. Question four. What are the names of Morris Fletcher's kids? Oh, um, Terry and Chris. Bonus point. Which one's which? <laughs> uh, Terry is the boy because he asked to be called Terrence at some point, I think. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> and final question. What article of clothing does the informant wear so that Mulder can identify him? Oh, is it uh, it's a Buffalo Bills baseball cap? It is indeed. Five yes. for five. <laughs> well done. Well, thank you very much, Kava, for joining me today. Uh, you're actually going to be here for the next podcast, too. As well. <laughs> so, listeners, be sure to tune in then. I promise it is not going to be bad. I know I've dropped some hints, but <laughs> you want to tune in, hear me out, okay? We, we've got some good episodes in there as well. I'll, I'll be the light in, in, in dark places for that one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, listeners, uh, thank you very much for listening. Please uh, get in touch with me. Go to X-Files, talkxfiles.com. Please send me some listener questions because um, these are quite fun doing these at the beginning of each episode. I'm enjoying it. So hope you are too and please keep them coming. Um, we will wrap up now and we will. Uh, you can hear us next week. Uh, I'm going to go and have a lie down on my waterbed and read the New York Times backwards. <laughs>
flying saucers and ETs in government conspiracies. But I've seen none of the above. If I did, I think I probably would run a million miles. Lose my little mind. Big piles of manure.